this is Alex Simon, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. New York. The French delegation walked out of the United Nations General Assembly last night. The walkout came after the UN decided by a one-vote margin to take up the highly controversial issue of Algerian independence. France bitterly opposed the move. Denver. James Haggerty, White House press secretary, says President Eisenhower had a restful night last night, and his progress after his heart attack continues to be satisfactory without complications. Hollywood. Rising young film star James Dean was killed last night when his sports car collided almost head-on with another car at an intersection near Paso Robles, California. He was 24 years old. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about September 30th, 1955. <laughs> Welcome to... The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm the other host, and my name is Brian Connolly. And together, we are here to say that we are not doing this show together. <laughs> uh, this is one of the ones that you, you, you took off. You had, you had other things to do. More important <laughs> things to do than watching September 30th, 1955. So I had to bring in a ringer. That ringer, in fact, is Alex Simon. And he's just sort of a all-around creature of Hollywood. He, is, uh, he, he was the editor of Venice Magazine for many years. He has a uh, podcast called... What is it called again? <laughs> The Hollywood Interview Podcast. Yes, he has a podcast called The Hollywood Interview Podcast and a website full of amazing interviews that he has conducted at the hollywoodinterview.blogspot.com. And why he took the time to talk to someone as uh, well unimpressive as me. <laughs> It's only because he loved this film, Brian, this film, September 30th, 1955. Now, this is a date that uh, has a great deal of meaning for you, right? <laughs> I was not around then, no. <laughs> but it's still, like, you don't, you weren't around for the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but you get that it has yeah. import. Yes, it was the, the day that Mr. James Dean passed away. He didn't um, pass away. He, he died. He was killed. He was killed he in died. a car crash. <laughs> Killed in a Koresh. Uh, yeah. Uh, after only having been in, what, three movies? Like, as a star in three movies? So Yeah, and only I, one had I, come out. And he was sort of like, am I right in thinking that he was sort of the first of this sort of wave of Hollywood and Americana deaths that kind of had a profound impact on baby boomers? Like yeah. Like, this, and then you kind of get into a Marilyn Monroe, JFK. Like, you kind of get into all these people that died uh, young. When did Buddy Holly die? Oh, that was probably around this time, or maybe a little after. I'm very ignorant on yeah, but like when yeah, him, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. That's the day the music oh, yeah. died. Yeah, so this, so, uh, so <laughs> yeah, Buddy Holly would have died four years after this. So yeah, James Dean was probably the first baby boomer death tragedy that had this big impact. And if not, yeah. let's just say it did. 
Who else would it be? <laughs> I mean, I can't. I couldn't think of anyone else. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Maybe if Jerry Lewis had died tragically in the late forties. <laughs> yeah, that would people would have been bummed about that. But yeah. he didn't. He said he lived to be an old bastard. <laughs> If only James Dean and Buddy Holly could have been so lucky to live to be old <laughs> bastards. Um, yes, well, we, we talk about it a lot. Uh, Alex and I share a lot of uh, similar yeah. feelings about James Dean. So it, it, it was a very fruitful it, conversation. I, I just, this is a really good interview. He, I mean, he is incredibly knowledgeable about film history and people involved in Hollywood and Hollywood from yesteryear. And so it's a very, it's a very smart conversation. It's sort of like, these are the, these are the type of people we like on our show. Like these, this is, he's a movie person. Like, like just like past guest, Stephen Peros. This is not just a person who works in Hollywood. This is a person who lives and breathes hollywood lore and just movie fact trivia knowledge just insight it is it is a great conversation i really enjoyed listening to it and um yeah and you guys get really personal about your experience of sort of like celebrity death that affected you and your youth um and uh yeah it just it's uh I, I really like this conversation a lot and i think everyone should listen to it for sure yeah, and it gave me a, a, a great opportunity to dig into the films of James Bridges, which we also end up going to in, in some depth. And so, yeah, great. <laughs> and and I and I bat for Urban Cowboy. I'm also I'm gonna plant my flag on Urban Cowboy. Yeah, I'm wait, a, wait till the after. Wait till the outro. <laughs> okay, let's go to a clip now from the film September thirtieth, nineteen fifty-five, and then we will go to my conversation with Alex Simon. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Hello. No, this isn't Billy Jean. It's Mel Blue. Who's this? Oh, hello, Jimmy J. I don't know if she can come to the phone. She can't talk for crying. Billie Jean! Huh? Oh, uh huh. She knows all about it. Her uncle, who's just as crazy for movies as she is, called up from Bakersfield, woke us up first thing this morning. You know, I never did see that movie. What was it called? Something about Eden? Oh, uh huh. Well, I've seen a lot of pictures of him, though. Yeah, she must have over 200. He's just as cute as a button. Oh, I know. Phone's been busy. I've been talking to some friends. Okay. All right. Billy Jean! What? I got Jimmy J here on the phone. Now, do you or do you not want to talk to him? Oh, I want to. Jimmy, we haven't seen you in a long time. You deserted us. Oh, here she is. Okay. Oh, my God, my be My God, my beans are boiling over. Hello, Jimmy. Do you, you hear what happened? Yeah, you were the first one I tried to call when I found out only one in this old town. Don't you talk forever. I'm expecting a call. What? No, I'm not all right at all. Really, I'm about to fall to pieces. Well, I've just been looking at pictures of him and uh, thinking about him. And I'm trying to contact his spirit. 
Yeah. Oh yes. Oh Jimmy, please come and come and get me. This is Monitor, and now from Hollywood, yeah. a special report on the death of James Dean. Not since Jimmy the death J. Of More news. Charlotte, switch it to NBC. 9.20 on the dial. There's more news. Here's some napkins. Quoted a line. They didn't have great bed, honey, so I got you orange crush. That's okay. Turn it up. Will you, Charlotte? Will you turn it up? Damn it. Green, he was extreme and debatable. Barbecued beef, extra sauce, coleslaw. Coleslaw, I had coleslaw. I've been in the ham. Jimmy. Tough to understand. Likeable. I can't tell which one of these is a However couple, unusual which one of these Dean may have been, no one will argue that his talent is not outstanding. Hollywood will be talking about he James Dean or dead. and what he was and what Charlie. he could have been for a Here long come, time Jimmy. to come. You are on Apparently, the can you even drop at the same time? Yep. I got to go pick up Billie Jean, Charlotte. Billie Jean? Yes, Pat, Billie Jean. Is that all right with you? It's all right with me if it's all right with Charlotte. Is it? Do you have to? Charlotte, she admired him every bit as much as I did, and you know that. Jimmy, it was only a movie star. Why not you? What the hell did you say? I said he was only a movie star, and it wasn't like he knew him or anything. There's ice everywhere. Oh, what the hell? Goddamn barbecued ham all over the car. Shit, look at that. Shoot, I just washed my hair last night. That's just the kind of thing Jimmy Dean would have done. I've been wanting to do this film, September 30, 1955, and to have it come out the week of that date since I saw it for the first time just earlier this year. And I'd never heard of this film before, and I didn't know anyone else who'd seen it, and my co-host wasn't going to be able to make this show. And so I was like, who can I find to talk to about this film? And I reached out to our mutual friend, Stephen Peros, and asked if he was familiar with it. And I don't even remember if he said he was because his immediate response was I know who you have to talk to about this film and it's you Alex Simon so I'm just uh, so excited to have someone who is even aware of this film let alone an authority as you are I just have you know and uh, obviously you know whether you want to call yourself a film scholar or a film nerd we consider ourselves film nerds over here (laughs) you can self-identify however you like but to just to find someone who's really uh, knowledgeable about film who wants to talk about this film is just is really exciting to me. Plus, I've already learned a ton from you because you pointed me in the direction of checking out the work of James Bridges, who's the writer and director of this film, but of a whole bunch of other really uh, exciting films as well. So I'm just I'm super excited to have you here to talk about this and film in general. So thank you. Um, well, this movie, actually, I had a, a long journey in actually seeing it. I initially learned of it when I went on my very first tour of Universal Studios with my parents in uh, early 1978. And for anybody who was alive then and went on that tour, you know, on the big orange tram that they had, the inside of the tram was decorated with lobby cards of all their current releases. And we happened to sit in a seat that had a lobby card from something called 93055. Um, and I looked at it and it had a picture of John Boy from the Waltons, Richard Thomas. Mm-hmm. And he was wearing this red jacket and sitting on a motorcycle. And I just thought, wow, what a cool image. And one of my parents, I forget which, they were both 50s kids, said, oh, that's the day James Dean died. 
And I had just learned about James Dean like a month before. I happened to see Rebel Without a Cause on TV. And my parents came home and uh, relieved the babysitter of her duties. And, and, you know, both were transfixed watching the climax with me at Griffith Observatory because that was like the key movie of mm-hmm. their high school years. So I became obsessed with seeing 93055 as it was originally titled. And sadly, it got a very small release. I mean, I don't think my guess is it didn't even play wide outside of like New York, LA and Chicago. I grew up in Phoenix and mm-hmm. I kept looking, you know, this, this will, you know, take you back to the analog days. I kept looking in the paper every Friday when the movies would change and there was nowhere to be found. So fast forward to about 1986, um, my summer job uh, between college, uh, college semesters, was working at a uh, Long God record and video store called The Warehouse. And we all had first dibs on all the new videos that came out. And lo and behold, there's 93055, now retitled September 30th, 1955. So I grabbed it, took it home and watched it. And I just thought it was kind of a, a brilliant, glorious mess. Um, some of it worked brilliantly like high arts, other parts of it like a bad TV movie. Um, I've seen it probably five or six times since then. Uh, I got the Blu-ray when it came out a few months ago. Uh, for people that don't know, this is a movie that's just loaded with talent before and behind the camera. You've got James Bridges, the writer-director, who just a few years prior had done The Paper Chase, which was a, a huge sleeper hit in 1973. And I'm sure what was able to get you know this pet project of his made uh you've got gordon willis as the dp who yeah. shot all the godfather films yeah. and, and who shot all the president's men and the parallax view i mean you know arguably the greatest american dp of that era and then you've got richard thomas and susan tyrell and, and lisa blount tom hulse dennis quaid dennis christopher all these young actors most of whom this was their first picture uh, Lisa Blount especially was a local girl in Arkansas who I think was 19 when they cast her in this and uh, you know all went on to have great careers. Lisa Blount and her husband Ray McKinnon even won the Academy Award for Best Short uh, in the early 2000s sometimes. So uh, it, it uh, w- what it does brilliantly and I think you can say this about all of James Bridges films it captures a specific zeitgeist of a time and place. Um, this takes place in rural Arkansas in a small college town where James Bridges actually went to school and was called Arkansas State Teachers College. It later became the University of Central Arkansas. Um, and basically, I think he's a combination of the Richard Thomas character, whose name is Jimmy Jay, and probably also the Dennis Christopher character, Eugene, who it's obvious is a closeted gay kid. Uh, James Bridges was probably one of the first out directors in Hollywood. He was in a long relationship with a guy named Jack Larson, who most pop culture aficionados would probably know as being the original Jimmy Olsen on the Superman TV series. And he later became a very successful producer and librettist. Uh, and they were together for over 30 years, like from the late 50s until Bridges' very untimely death. Um, you, a, lot of, a lot of this I'm, I'm, I'm guessing because I, I searched on the web and there's just not a lot written about this film. Uh, 
So uh, I kind of have to fill in the blanks on my own based on what I know about the people involved. Uh, what else can I say about it? Um, beautiful shot, obviously, by Gordon Willis. Uh, the other thing Bridges did brilliantly was he cast a lot of non-professionals in supporting parts and bit parts. I mean, you know, otherwise known as real people right. from that rural town in, in central Arkansas. And boy, do they drive this this movie home. Mm-hmm. Just with, I mean, with with their complete authenticity and the fact that they're they're not polished actors or polished people. You know, it really it really puts you there. Uh, on the weak side, it opens with about a three minute sequence of Richard Thomas just watching the end of East of Eden. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's like okay, we get this cut. <laughs> you know, uh, it 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 would have just needed you know, 20 seconds of him watching the end of East of Eden and we would have gotten it because what you assume when you watch this kind of movie is people who are attracted to this subject matter know who James Dean was. They know, they know East of Eden. They know, you know, what, what an icon James Dean was for that generation of post-war teenagers. Uh, So I thought that was a really odd choice on Bridges part. And then at the end, Richard Thomas has like this four minute monologue that he Mm -hmm. gives to, to Lisa Blount. That's like something out of a high school drama class where, where you just, you know, again, you want to say, Oh, Jim cut, (laughs) you know, it's like, we get it. We got it, you know, in the first 10 seconds, you know, less is more sometimes, but then he's also got scenes where less is more, where it's very understated. And the people in the scene are, you know, kind of inarticulate, people in their late teens and it feels really authentic and then suddenly you know richard thomas becomes this you know this poet in the end so it's a wildly uneven movie but so much of it is great that uh i think movie buffs especially and history buffs should should absolutely uh seek it out yeah yeah I, 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 you know what? I think I might, li- I might th- like this film even more than you do now. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, but uh, where? So do you feel like it was just that it was a poorly released film? In that, well, that I don't know. That I don't know because remember, this came out in early '78, post Star Wars. So the 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 zeitgeist was changing. Uh, American Graffiti sort of kicked off this whole nostalgia craze about movies in the 50s or early 1960s that, that sort of then translated into that genre that uh, that became known as redneck noir. You know, you had movies like Macon County Line and Buster and Billy and uh, a bunch of stuff that Joe Don Baker did. Walking Tall, although mm-hmm. that, was, that wasn't a period piece. But, uh, and then you had, of course, the success of the TV show Happy Days, which was set during that period. Um, and I mean, the Waltons, I mean, Richard Thomas, that's, yeah, the Waltons was set during the depression. Perfect example. So, but, but the nostalgic craze was, was really going out by then, you know, star Wars changed everything and just completely reset the pendulum. So I think it was a combination of that. My guess is also the execs from universal saw this and said, you know, there's parts of this that work, but parts of this that don't and you know jim we need you to recut this and my guess is he said no because it was such a personal project so they just you know they they did a quick release in in the four or five major cities in the u.s and and then that was it um it was 
it, it probably had a run on early HBO or Showtime, which I think was starting about that point. But, uh, you know, one of the great things about home video in the 80s was that it resurrected a lot of these terrific films that didn't get a chance in the theater because, you know, as, as two Gen Xers, we know that it's like if you missed a movie in the theaters, that was it. Yeah. Unless it was a huge hit and it got a re-release and you could watch it on TV where, of course, they would cut out all the good stuff. Um, but, uh, if, uh, if you grew up in those analog times, it was a very different world, which actually September 30th, 1955 shows in the, in the, the second sequence when the news of James Dean's death comes out over the college campus, uh, Jimmy J hears something on the radio about a movie star who was killed in a car wreck. And he runs all over campus seeing if someone yeah. has you know, another dime. radio or a newspaper. He's and looking finally, for a dime so he can make yeah, the looking call. For a dime to call. Exactly. Finally, he runs to the college radio station yeah. where he knows it's time for the news to be read over the teletype. And yet he, he has to wait for you know three different teletypes to be read before the guy says, movie star James Dean has been killed at age 24 in a two-car collision in Central California. And it's that cut and dried. And you just see how devastated he is. You also see very clearly, and here's another thing that made this kind of a, a bold movie. This guy's got issues, Jimmy J. He's unstable. <clears throat> he is not likable necessarily. Um, you know, watching this again last night, I thought to myself, boy, I'm finding myself kind of relating more to Dennis Quaid. I want to get the hell away from this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he's just, he's so over the top and, and emotional about someone that he never knew. And I mean, I can completely see the POV of just these ordinary kids who are like, yeah, you know, I liked his movies, but dude, have a beer, you know, <laughs> move on. You didn't know him. Uh, and, and, and Thomas goes for it a hundred percent. I mean, he completely drives, just dives into how manic and obsessed this kid is. Mm -hmm. And the other really uh, brave performance is Lisa Blount as his sort of gal Friday slash girlfriend slash project, I guess you'd call her, who's even. Or his, his and muse and his inspiration. Like they're like. Yeah, well, they have other. this. They're each other's muse. Yeah, they and, have and, this bond of that they both see something and are inspired from something in James Dean but, that nobody but today, else gets. Today, her character especially would probably be considered on the spectrum somewhat. I mean, she is really on a whole nother wavelength from anyone else in that town, uh, even more so than Richard Thomas. At, at least Richard Thomas can is like a football player. And, you know, can hang out with the fraternity guys and he's got a, you know, a beautiful girlfriend who's the head cheerleader at the college. So he can cut, he sort of has one foot in, in the straight world and one foot in the freak world. Uh, whereas Lisa Blount's character is a full on freak. If it were 15 years later and it was 1970, she would have been a hippie and she would have been fine. But in that environment, uh, there yeah. was no place for her to fit into. Well, let's and... let, let, can we can we back up for a second because well the what it's the Billy Jean character. So we got Jimmy J and Billy Jean, and right. even before we get to them, to me, like that opening of just uh, staying on that last scene of East of Eden as long as it does, as someone who this film reminds me of how much I was as a teenager completely sort of uh, turned on inspirationally 
by James Dean in ways that oh, were probably too. weird and obsessive, seemed weird and obsessive. And the, I mean, Gordon Willis, goddamn, what he does just in those, the opening shots of capturing just the that high school football see, uh, scene right before Jimmy J learns of uh, Jim, uh, James Dean's death. Yeah, but they're college students, remember. They're not high school students. So it's, it's an important distinction because these, these are people who, these are young adults as opposed to teenagers. And because they're in college, these are people who are aspiring to something more. It's you know, true. you have to figure that, okay. that, that, that these are people who want to get out of that small town, maybe even leave Arkansas, because especially in the 50s, if you went to college, that was something, yeah. especially if you came from that kind of a background. I mean, you you were the best and the brightest, even if you went to a small college like that, it meant you had ambition. And I, I think that that one reason Jimmy J had such a hard time with this is that he he was a young 19. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, the Dennis Quaid character and maybe even the Tom Hulse character to a certain extent, and, yeah. and also Deborah Benson, who played his his very pretty, very sweet cheerleader girlfriend, who was was just she was she was drawn to what was odd about him, but she was equally baffled by it. They they had moved into young adulthood. Um, and I, I think that that, uh, you know, what what made Jimmy J had that sort of Peter Pan syndrome, whatever that was inside him, also turned out to be what was right about him because it made him leave town at the end. Yeah. And go to Hollywood, which is what James Bridges did. And James Bridges, his talent was discovered immediately. I mean, he's one of those guys that just got so lucky. I mean, he almost started working from the moment he arrived. Um, And if you read about how it happened, it was just through a series of random events that occurred in his life where, you know, he yeah. walked into an elevator and met somebody, you know? Yeah. So it, it, uh, he, he, he was one of those people, obviously, that just for lack of a better way of putting it, had great karma. Everything just seemed to work for him until he died very young. Um, but I think that, uh, uh, I, I also was, you know, obsessed with James Dean and his movies as I, as I became a teenager. And, uh, read all sorts of biographies on him, including the most famous one, which was called the mutant King. Yep. That I read um, that one myself. I, I, <laughs> yes. I forget the author's name. Do you remember? Uh, I do not remember, but why don't we just give him a, 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 a shout out here. The mutant King. Anyway, he, uh, it was a very well-written book and it, uh, it was David your, Dalton your typical... from David. Thank Dalton. you. It wasn't your typical movie star biography. He also, David Dalton seemed like he was very groovy, kind of mm-hmm. a hippie. There was a lot of metaphysics in there as well. Yeah. And I'd never read a biography that that had those elements in it. So it 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 made it that much more interesting that, you know, James Dean wasn't he almost portrayed him as being more than human. Like he was he was some evolved spirit that came here and, you know, the old saying, the the flame that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. And that was sort of his his overall thesis in the book about James Dean. Why you know, it was almost like he was predestined to die young, because he if he had grown older, like Brando did, and just become like another actor, and then you know God forbid, in old age become a caricature of himself, it, it would have ruined the lore of what he represented in the mid fifties to that whole generation of kids, and then to to kids later on like we were. Yeah, there is there is something. 
I think this film taps into it is whether or not it's true the impact of James Dean on people who were who felt like the outsiders he played had a a genuinely mystical impact if that's because is that's if that's Maybe, about but, the time but, or if it's about the medium of film or if it, but here's, just, here's yeah. what's here's what's changed i'm glad you said outsider because by the time we were in high school in the 80s i graduated high school in 1985 i don't know about you i guess 86. we're about the same age yeah. yeah okay so we're almost exactly the same age um you could still be an outsider and be cool because remember there were there was still punk rock then uh, there was still uh, there was still you know an air of mystery that someone could have and be an outsider. You know th- there was also you could be an outsider if you were a nerd, if you were uncool. But let's face it, James Dean was a cool outsider. He was great looking. He was charismatic. He I wouldn't say he was always self assured, but even when he was being awkward, he was still cool. You know what I mean? So it's like that's one thing that if you if you were a nerdy kid, which I most certainly was, uh, you, you thought to yourself, you know, I could be like that and not be a complete conformist, but I could also still be cool. You know, I could look good in that red jacket. Uh, I could walk with confidence, and maybe the hot girls would still find me attractive enough to go out with. Whereas nobody aspired to be. Anthony Michael Hall and Sixteen Candles. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and that's what's changed, is, is that now you've got, you know, Seth Rogen is like cool to kids now. And whereas, you know, Daniel Craig, I don't think is. It's now cool to be kind of a, a schlubby, awkward, eternal kid. And back then, the, there was nothing cool about that. Back then, if you were an outsider, there still had to be something cool and attractive about you. And I think that's what James Dean represented, all of those things. And the other thing that this film, uh, September 30th, 30th, 1955, really taps into is this thing about, and it's what makes this film so oddly straight and oddly queer, is it's about this guy who loves James Dean the way a lot of us love James Dean. And he even says like, and then there's, I love him the way that, or play, he's talking about how Plato loves uh, James Dean's character in Rebel Without a Cause. And he compares it to the way the Dennis Christopher character feels about him and the way he feels about James Dean. And he, that character, the Richard Thomas character, the Jimmy J character is not coded as, there's, there are characters in this film who are definitely coded as queer. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, but he is not. And yet he has this comfort and fluidity, which is very James Dean. I don't know. It, yeah. there's, there's something, the way I think about this, uh, it's such a 70s thing. I do feel like there's like, this works the way like the best singer-songwriter material kind of works. Like a whole album yeah. holds together. Like there might be pretentious parts. There might be, but it's not pretentious if you have bought into the ethos of that singer songwriter and yeah. his ethos in this is so now having watched all, I think all of his films uh, that he's, that he directed the, this one is, I think it might be my favorite. I love, I love China syndrome now, and we can get into talking oh, about James. China syndrome is, That's is such incredible. a masterpiece of a film, but there's something about this in the sense of like, 
this is so personal and so specific and so well cast and so well shot. And because it's about James Dean, I feel like like the part there's a part where they're on the beach and Richard Thomas basically becomes a hippie. He covers himself yeah. in mud and he makes a mud statue of the of the the Oscar and they all hold hands and they're sitting on the beach and it's like the weird like you shouldn't make a movie about this about James Dean because you can't live up to the feelings that he inspired and this film does live up to the feelings it inspired so that scene works and a lot of this movie feels like that to me. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy with the singer-songwriter. I never I never thought of that before, but you're spot on. This could have been a Jackson Brown album. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> or, 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 or a Dylan album, or even something by Seeger or Springsteen when they were young. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I think that, uh, you know, th- th- what, what most film scholars say about Dean is that he was a 60s kid who happened to be stuck in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, I did one of the last interviews with Dennis Hopper about a year and a half before he passed. And we talked a lot about his relationship with, with James Dean. Uh, he always called him Jimmy. Uh, and he said that, uh, well, I, you know, I asked him straight up. I said, because he was such an experimental personality, as were you, do you think he would have survived the 60s? Or would he have OD'd or, you know, crashed on his Harley as opposed to, his, you know, in a Porsche? And he said, oh, yeah, he would have survived. Um, he said, he said, my guess is he would have been, you know, over drugs by that point because he, he had done all that experimenting. He Hopper felt that he would have become a filmmaker. He probably would have been the first actor to make that transition into being a really successful filmmaker who had his own signature. Um, he's actually the one who got Dennis Hopper into photography and told him not to crop his photos to just, to just shoot them in a natural framing. Uh, and of course, you know, in addition to his incredible acting chops and skills as a filmmaker, Hopper became a a world renowned photographer. And he, he credits all that to James Dean's tutelage uh, when they were on the sets of rebel without a cause and giant. Yeah. Got to imagine, you know, Hopper, Cassavetes and Dean. Yeah. (laughs) Although I don't know that Cassavetes ever worked with Hopper. I know he never worked with Dean. I'm just thinking Uh, of actor turned directors at that time. He would have, he would have preceded Cassavetes, although I think Cassavetes was a couple years older than Dean. But uh, according to Hopper, you know, he, Dean already had some, you know, potential directing projects in the works because he was such a hot ticket item. Warners was willing to give him, you know, a low budget movie to, to cut his teeth on as a director. So he might've, he might've beat Cassavetes. I think Cassavetes did Shadows in 59. That sound about right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might've beat him by a year or two. But, but uh, the, you know, the, the message that Hopper tried to get across to me is that he absolutely would have had as unique a voice as somebody like John Cassavetes. Um, and it, uh, it's just, you know, that much more of a shame that we were denied that, that, that he, you know, I remember as a teenager when I, when I realized how, how young Dean was when he was killed, I thought, yeah, you know, 24, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's pretty young. Of course, now at age 54, that's mm-hmm. a baby. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't even fully formed at 24 looking back. I mean, I, you know, I was still so wet behind the ears. And if you look at how much James Dean accomplished by the time he reached 24 and, and how much more he could have evolved as a person, as an artist, um, probably as an activist, because apparently he had yeah. a very strong social conscience. 
you know, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. It, uh, I, I, I think we, we always lament our heroes in this way who are taken away too young, who seem to have so much greatness inside them. I was just talking with a friend the other day about Bobby Kennedy, who's another one of my heroes and has been since childhood. And, you know, the, the, the take that most political you scientists- You like him and, tragic, don't you? <laughs> well, they never start out being tragic. They're tragic because they start out being just the opposite. Right. They start out being, you know, these people who seem to be, but for but but for guys our age because you, you you've added our ages yeah both James Dean and Bobby Kennedy we inherited the tragedy we didn't yes well put yeah we didn't get to go on the ride and have that our hearts broken in real time no I'll, I'll tell you who my first one was in real time where I reacted like Richard Thomas did in this movie to James Dean I know who it's going to be because we have the we we sync up here I bet I know John Lennon yep exactly we're the same I age. was I was in like a coma for two weeks after, after Lennon was killed. My mom didn't um, t- let me stay home from school. She never let me stay home from school. I freaked. I, yeah, I think, I think actually it's great that you're bringing up this memory because I think it's what this film taps into. There is a weird impact. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You can, I did. No, no, it's okay. I got, you got me. So, cause that was a traumatic and powerful moment, but I want to hear your memory of it. Well, I was, I was, Brushing my teeth to go to bed. It was 9.30 at night, December, Monday, December 8th. Uh, Monday night football had just ended. Um, although I, I only watched, I think, the first half. Uh, we got a phone call from my uncle, who uh, my mom answered the phone, and she said, oh, my God. And she said, okay, hold on. And she gave the phone to me, and she said, it's Don. And and uh, said, hello. And he said, Alex, I was just watching – the end of Monday Night Football, and Howard Cosell came on the air and said that John Lennon had been shot twice in the back and was pronounced dead on arrival at Roosevelt Hospital in New York. And I literally dropped the phone and fell to my knees like somebody had just punched me in the gut. Yeah. Um, I had just, I had been a Beatles fan for about two years. I really discovered the Beatles around 78. I bought the the 67 to 70 album, the blue album mm-hmm. that was, uh, and I just, you know, to this day, I'm obsessed with the Beatles. Um, I didn't like Lennon as much as I liked McCartney. I found him too angry when I was that age, but that summer of 1980, one of my camp counselors turned me on to Lennon, to Elvis Costello, uh, to the clash. And I really started not only listening to Lennon's solo stuff, but, but reading his interviews he'd done with Jan Wenner in Rolling Stone and by 13, I was a really angry kid. And suddenly Lennon's anger spoke to me mm-hmm. and his intellect spoke to me. And I had just bought Double Fantasy the week before he was killed. So it's like this new friend that I made, this guy who understood me, yeah. was suddenly taken from me. So I, I completely, from that standpoint, understand what the Jimmy J character was going through. But the other thing is, I was also 13. So, you know, much, much softer than I was as a 19 year old college student. And, but Yeah, but, you know, Luke Skywalker doesn't act like a grown up either. I mean, we got to give him, we got to give him, <laughs> yeah. they're speaking to the, the speaking cinematically. I give you, if he was really in college, like he could just, I, this guy, I'm watching this thinking, this guy could become this director or he could become Charles Manson. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. 
right? because you know, again, the guy, the guy is obviously unstable to a certain point. And, and but so clear, were you when you got that call and you cr- yes, like we, we are you know unstable. I, I didn't let it. I didn't let it affect my day to day life. I kept it yeah. hidden because I was already enough of a weirdo in my school as it was. So I wasn't going to let people know because, you know, let's face it. Most kids our age weren't into the Beatles. They were, you know, they, they, they definitely know. weren't into yeah. any of the solo Beatles. So, I mean, I, yeah. I just kept it to myself. The one thing I did do, I was editor of the junior high paper. I wrote an editorial as a salute to John Lennon. And, and as a reward after school, my, my, a bunch of my classmates jumped me and beat the shit out of me, you know, yeah. told me I was a quote unquote fag and yeah. a pussy and all those yeah. things. Um, and, and I knew it was going to happen, but I just thought, you know what? I have to put this down on record that this is what I'm feeling at this you know time and place, because I also felt it was an important moment historically. And, uh, you know, that who knows, maybe someday people would look back in the, in the morgue of the little newspaper room of my junior high and, you know, find this, this issue of the paper from December, 1980, um, even then I had delusions of grandeur. What can I say? Um, well, that's, I mean, it, it all is of a piece. It's all yeah. like when, if you don't have delusions of grandeur when you're 12, 13, 14, you know, I mean, that's when you, that's when you, that's what you're supposed to have. That's, I mean, what else are you going to have? Like, are you well, going to be yeah, resigned? I mean, I know there's, then there's the well, kids who beat you up. And let's that's, face it. Let's I, face I, it. I the ones who kids. didn't have delusions of grandeur at that age, they still live in the same little, community right. where they grew up they belong to the lions club and more often than not a lot of them are still asking people would you like prize with that for for their job so i'm not sorry i wasn't one of those guys don't get me wrong yeah yeah no that's uh, this is where that jimmy J character and his obsession with james dean it just works on all these levels and i gotta say yeah. richard thomas god damn uh i've been in the you know the world is wrong I, I like Richard Thomas as an adult actor. I've always oh, he, thought of him as a kind of a wet blanket as a young actor, but it's pro- it's because I never like the Waltons are such a, so antithetical to anything I was ever interested in when I was a kid. Yeah. But I'm watching him in this and my God, he is, he's so he's, he's man. He manages to play very understated and also very volatile it's, well, in the late 70s and early 80s, he reinvented himself as a legit actor on Broadway. I think he was in the initial cast of a play called Fifth of July, mm-hmm. where where he played a uh, uh, paraplegic Vietnam vet. He he uh, was paralyzed below the waist. Uh, and, and he either won an Obie if it was off-Broadway or a Tony if it was on Broadway. I forget which. But, I mean, he... He basically switched to being a theater actor from the 1980s onward. He wow. is, he's done a few films and t- TV things since then, but uh, at least in the theater world, he's regarded as a really fine actor. Um, and the other incredibly fine actor who the film knows it, because every time she's on, I feel like James Bridges is oh, like, yeah. this is just going to be a one-shot, guys. We're not... <laughs> is Susan Terrell. Oh, my God. How brilliant is she? Uh, yeah, yeah, a role that should be really deeply unsympathetic, and she doesn't play it for sympathy. It get it is a sympathetic role. She owned every movie she did. She it's not easy to steal a movie from Stacy Keach and James and Jeff Bridges, but she does it in John Huston's Fat City. 
I mean, she absolutely, and I think she was nominated for that. I could be wrong. Oh yeah, she was. She was definitely nominated. Um, but but the the first shot of her in in September 30th when she's standing on the stairway of this crumbling house she lives in, dressed in this sort of 1930s flapper outfit. There's no other way you can really describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, you know who this woman was and what her story was, and it's all her. It's all in her body language and the delivery of. She kind of has a little monologue there that she just knocks out of the park. Uh, 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 yeah, exactly. It's. It's, I, w- I don't even want to say that it's like a lesson in great acting because you can't do it. I don't care who you are. If you don't have that particular instrument that she has, you can't do that. And, and what I love about James Bridges is he knows it. He, like the film, everyone, it, I don't know what's going on, but when it's time for her scenes, this movie clicks into this ultra cinematic place like it's an like it really is this those are not uh tv that like the quality is not that none of it really looks like a, a t looks like a tv movie but there's something about that it you can tell that gordon willis is leading leaning into those Ilya kazan 50s films the film in those scenes in that house it feels like east of eden and it feels like splendor in the grass yeah completely and completely you know it's and and then the she's thing, in that world. Like those guys still feel like seventies guys. She feels right. like she's also from that Ilya Kazan world, even though she's as modern as any of them. Absolutely. And if you know anything about Susan Terrell as a person, she ended up having a very tragic, troubled life. I, I think what might have drawn her to that script is I'm guessing I, I think she did come from kind of a rural area, either in the south or maybe Texas originally don't quote me on that but I, I i don't think she was an la kid no uh i think she was the lisa blount character as a kid i think she was just because if you if you have seen interviews with her she was always just a real oddball fascinating obviously well, you, you, very you know, bright she played my mother in a movie i acted in a that's movie right her. let's talk about that a little bit tell me tell me about your because she she said you straight up when you mentioned fat city that, oh, yeah, directed by John Houston, who raped me, right? Yeah. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, what were you, 15? How old uh, you I, was, I was 19. I was 19 okay. years old. Okay, you were Jimmy J's age. Yeah, and the, it's what's crazy. The synchronicities here are kind of amazing because the writer of that film told me that that character was based on James Dean. And so, you know, of course, that totally fucked me up as an actor <laughs> but it didn't matter because i like really because i because whatever because i had all the 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 fire of youth and i was working with amazing people like susan terrell and I, you can't like when susan terrell when you have a, sc- a scene where you're screaming at each other she's my mother and i'm the son she has this great scene great line throwaway line she says to matt frewer when she's she's like he's your son she's like yeah Always threatening to go away, never does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we just have this very, uh, you know, fraught trailer park relationship. And and my character is set up as the bad guy. And we have one scene where we're just like screaming at each other in the kitchen and in, in this little house. And she. You know, she just vibrated at a totally different level. I mean, it wasn't. 
It was not the quality of this film. She was not working, no offense to the people who worked on Far From Home, but it was not James Bridges and Gordon Willis. Uh, but it was still Susan Terrell. And she yeah. was a, and she was a weirdo. Like she was definitely like the, the Billie Jean character. Her house was full of art that she made of all of the, like every piece of her art had an erection. Like if it was a dog, it had an erection. If it like yeah. everything had dicks on it, and <laughs> like they were all fertility. Like it was like they, it wasn't, and it wasn't intended to be erotic or gross. It the was original all, dick pic collection. It was for it was for they were fertility symbols, and it was like yeah, yeah. and it was like yeah, it was a really uh, crazy. It's funny because I acted in that film with Anthony Rapp, and Anthony ended up living with her uh, for a while, and just like I. I, I, it's one of those things well, where it's going on in Susan your life. Was a, maybe Susan was a, a Mayan priestess in a recent form of life. She, I hope she got off the wheel this time. She was, yeah. she worked hard in this life. She worked really hard. She worked really hard in this film. It's so fun to watch her in this film because you can see her feeling her power and being respected. This is when she's still Academy Award nominated Susan Terrell Right. And everyone on like the the DP from Godfather is shooting her and knows it. And she is just, oh, God, it's so like she gets second billing in this film, which is kind of weird when you see it. You're like, wait, when have I ever seen Susan Terrell get second billing in a movie? Well, aside from Richard Thomas, she was the only one who anybody knew at that point. Right. Um, (laughs) You know, and uh, I mean, I think I mean, I think. Tom Hulse, Dennis Christopher, Lisa Blount, Quaid. I mean, I think yeah. it was all of their first pictures. Uh, you know, Bridges also, if you, if you look at his track record, just had an incredible eye for talent. I mean, he discovered Lindsay Wagner and, uh, well, he didn't discover Timothy Bobbins, but it was, that was Timothy Bobbins' first adult role after the last picture show in the paper chase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also made an actor out of John Houseman, who prior to that was a producer. Yeah. You know, and, and Houseman went on to be an actor from that point on. To he wasn't actually, life. he wasn't able to pull that trick with Jan Wenner, but uh, we can get to that. <laughs> oh, God. We can get can we to... talk about Perfect for a minute? Okay, I'd wait, like wait. Talk... I want to get to that, but let's really quickly just like, I just okay. want to talk about one thing about the Tom Hulse character, because I feel like he, in this film, he's the other real sort of shining light. Like Dennis Christopher's character is good, but he's, he also like uh, the film gives him his heartbreak. Like almost also possibly, also possibly closeted. Yeah. I mean, if you, well, if you look at, you th- know, not, that's what I'm, the, what I think about Tom Hulse is that yeah. he's not closeted. He is a horny guy who is horny for girls and boys. He's right. always talking about like everything about him is oral fixations and hot dogs. Yeah. And it's like, his character is is actually one of the most interesting to me because yeah. he is so honestly that in another movie that character would be played by a woman. Yeah, the point. one who is so who who is so like the like is sort of like ah I just I'm free with everything. But I've never really seen seen that character played by a guy that way. And then to see to know that he's going to become Mozart, who's very much like that as well. I don't know. There's something watching him in this well, film. It makes me feel like when his character in animal house, Pinto was the only virgin in the pledge class. Right. You know, so he, he, it's interesting because, you know, in, in September 30th, he tries so hard to be the cool guy. He's got the brand new convertible Chevy Bel Air. He's, yeah. he's, he's got the clothes, but he's still an odd looking kind of goofy guy in spite of all that. And, you know, he's never going to be Dennis Quaid. 
who just yeah. has that classic 1950s football hero square job look about him. And you know that he's sort of, he's still in disguise. He's still not willing to be completely open about who he actually is. And maybe he doesn't even know yet. But yeah, each one of the characters in this, you're, you're absolutely correct, are, are very rich. Each one of them has their own individual vignette, which gives them an opportunity to show the audience who these people are. And uh, that's definitely something you didn't see in a lot of mainstream movies after the 70s, sadly. Yeah. Although in, Brit- in James Bridges movies, you did. Well, this is great. Let's let's. So now let's shift to talking about James Bridges, because when yeah. when I reached out to you about talking about this movie, I wasn't aware. James Bridges was not a name in my brain. I kind of vaguely, I would, you know, I kind of would have known he was a director of some things, but I never really explored his filmography, mm-hmm. but eight films all worth talking about. We don't have a lot Absolutely. of time, but, uh, but you wanted to start with perfect. That's kind of coming in at, towards well, the let's end. Let's go but... back. Let's go back to the paper chase. If you don't mind. Um, we can touch on the baby maker really briefly, if you like. The Paper Chase was my first, that was my first James Bridges movie. And of course, it inspired the TV series that lasted throughout our childhood. It ran for several years in the 70s and then again was rebooted in the 80s on PBS. Yeah. Um, and he stayed involved with, with production the entire time. I remember first seeing the Paper Chase and I'm the son of two academics. So the fact that it was set in the it's university. Funny. You and I are like, we're the same person, Alex. <laughs> we're the same fucking person. That's crazy. Uh, I was also a child actor like you. I did community theater in Phoenix. <laughs> um, but uh, I just remember, you know, I'd never really seen a movie set in my parents' world. And for years, I just assumed that James Bridges was at least an Ivy League grad, if not a Harvard grad, because he seemed to capture that very specific subculture so perfectly. And it wasn't until I, you know, did some research on him years later that I found out, no, he was a country boy from Arkansas. And, and somehow, who knows, maybe being a gay kid obsessed with movies and theater in this little tiny Arkansas parish made him such a great observer that he was able to just plug in the energy and the zeitgeist of all these foreign locales when he made a film. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, also if you look at, at Timothy Bottoms in uh, the paper chase, he's, he's kind of an awkward, weird outsider. Because I think he doesn't he come from from Indiana or something yeah. or Iowa, uh, you know, he's a country boy in Harvard, you know, and, and I don't even know if they said where he did his undergraduate before going to law school. But but if they didn't specify, you have to assume he didn't start at Princeton. He went to like Iowa or Iowa State or something or Indiana University, just, you know, your garden variety state university. And and then here he is. Not only does he wind up at Harvard, but he's sleeping with the beautiful daughter of, of the head of the law school who he's terrified of, you know, who, who definitely is a product of, you know, Smith or Radcliffe or that entire world. Um, he excelled at, at sort of fish out of water stories, James Bridges. And that's uh, another one. Talk about some great casting. Oh, my God. Edward Herman and Craig T. Nelson and James Naughton. Wait, not Craig Blair Brown. Yeah, Blair, Blair Brown, Brown showing who, up early. Yeah. Oh, God, the thinking man's bombshell. <laughs> I, I have had a crush on her since since I first saw the paper chase on TV. I, and, and I thought to myself, wow, she looks like a redheaded Jackie Kennedy. I'm in love with her. And of course, 10 years later, she plays Jackie Kennedy in that miniseries with Martin Sheen where he played JFK. There you go. And I mean, 
she went she went on to have you know also an amazing career and i think that was probably her first movie um also god what was his name uh the guy who played uh stensland in la confidential played one of the guys in their law school group and oh he, he david very, naughton no not david no, naughton no, not james um, naughton um or not James Nod. No, no, no. He he was in L.A. Confidential. He played Russell Crowe's partner who gets killed at the beginning of L.A. Confidential. Oh yeah. And he was really heavy then. And and in the paper chase, he was very thin, almost looked like a you know a former student athlete. Uh, Graham Beckel, was, and and you know he went on to have a huge career as a character actor as well. Um, but but the paper chase is one of those movies. It's almost fifty years old now. Boy, it still holds up and feels contemporary. I mean, it's it's just so good. And we both just watched Bridges' first feature, The Baby Maker, um, which was produced, EP'd by Robert Wise and his company for a first feature. That's not a bad pedigree. Yeah. And uh, it it doesn't completely work. You want to talk about a movie with a lot of unnecessary scenes that just keep going on and on. But it absolutely felt like it captured that zeitgeist of Southern California in the late 60s. Plus, it gives us, it's it's the discovery of Scott Glenn who I didn't recognize in the beginning because we're used to seeing him so craggy. Yeah. And I mean, Oh man. Well, I mean, James Bridges has, I mean, gives uh, Scott Glenn probably two of his great beefcake roles in the yeah. baby maker and urban cowboy. Yeah. Like, it's, it's good. Like you get to be craggy if you were like that in Hollywood. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, did you know on the set of urban cowboy, on the set of Urban Cowboy, Scott Glenn set a Guinness World Record by doing 2,000 push-ups in one one sitting. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> and he's also, you know, he's also an incredibly bright, erudite guy. He graduated with honors, I guess, from from William and Mary. He was a he was a Marine advisor in the early days of Vietnam. I mean, he's had an amazing life. This guy. Uh, but but the, the person who really shone for me, we mentioned Colin Wilcox playing the the adoptive mother, but Barbara Hershey. Oh my God! God, yeah. I mean, not only was she incredibly beautiful, but I mean, just what a fine actress. Um, actually, just to just because we you referenced something we mentioned before we started recording, Colin Wilcox Paxton is yeah. in the Baby Maker. She also plays Richard Thomas's. Mother Mother. in September 30, 1955, in a very long segment in which she's running around in just his tidy whities, which I think like very brave at like I feel like that and the swimmer. I can't think of many other movies where someone (laughs) is so sort of man out of water, just like it's another one of my favorite movies, by the way. I'm I'm a huge fan of the Perry's. Yeah. All the movies that Frank and Eleanor Perry did together. Yeah. yeah, she's and she makes a real impression in just that one scene. She is also people will remember her as the uh, the character from To Kill a Mockingbird who acu- who falsely accuses Rock Peters. Yes, of being a rapist. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. No, she she she, uh, she also had a very long career. A lot of unsympathetic uh, older women, it seems like. And you know, it's funny. It's, there's another weird synchronicity here because when you mentioned. Uh, I knew there was something, there was a connection. When you mentioned that James Bridges' partner played Jimmy Olsen in the Superman Jack series. Larson. yeah. Uh, well, Anne Duran was in the Superman series, and she also played another unsympathetic 
mother in Rebel Without a Cause as James Dean's mother. I got one more for you. I got one more for you. Phyllis Coates, who had the small part in The Baby Maker as Barbara Hershey's mother, was the first Lois Lane in the Superman TV series. Whoa, Superman and James Dean. There's a yep. odd. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it does. And it's well, we could. Then we should tie in Shadowlands somehow, but I'm not. Is that's that's what that's the one with uh, the Ben Affleck Superman murder. No, Shadowlands is Anthony Hopkins and Deborah. Sorry, uh, which yeah. is the, what's the one with uh, with Ben Affleck and Adrian Brody? Hollywood Land. Hollywood, Hollywood Land. Land. Okay, I knew yeah. there was a land in there. Anyway, very good film. Also, coming back to the Baby Maker, I think yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it is very much of its era. It's it's a first film, you know, yeah. and it's so. Uh, so many of the things it's funny because I feel like the baby maker actually connects very much to perfect. They had they they are yeah. different, but maybe the most similar movies. And I feel like they're both not great, but uh, very, very different. I don't know. Like, do you see the connection? Like the way that it just, it's so into its characters that it forgets. Well, and it also captures the zeitgeist of the era. Perfect right. came out during the fitness craze right. in the mid eighties, which I was a part of, you know, I was tired of being a skinny kid. I joined the local Nautilus and I kind of transformed myself and, and I became pretty obsessive about it. And in my opinion, who nobody talks about in perfect, who should have gotten an Oscar nomination, who summed up the whole thesis of what that movie was trying to say was the Lorraine Newman character. Lorraine Newman yeah. was so brilliant and so heartbreaking in a straight role. Yeah. We only knew her as a comedian from the original cast of SNL. And a man like Susan Terrell, she played this oddball mm-hmm. who wanted so badly to be something she wasn't, and she just killed it. She was heartbreaking. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 But it's but I have to say I think Perfect is probably Bridges Nadir as a filmmaker. It's, it's not a good movie, but it's fascinating if you look at it as a time capsule piece. Um, and speaking of time capsule, going back to the baby maker real quick, one thing that struck me while watching it last night was the Jeannie Berlin character. Yeah. Who is this angry activist. People yeah. will remember Jeannie Berlin as the daughter of Elaine May, and she played Charles Grodin's first wife in The, in the Heartbreak, Heartbreak Kid, yeah. the original yeah. Heartbreak Kid. And she was nominated for that part. She was so extraordinary. But her character in The Baby Maker, I thought to myself, my God, she's one of today's wokesters who today would be a keyboard warrior who gets offended about everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You well, know, because she, she was standing there telling Barbara Hershey, you know, they're the enemy. They're the enemy. This is the enemy. This is, you know, and I was just thinking to myself, everything old is new again. Hey, you, know? you want to really <laughs> blow your mind and get some of that academic thing? Uh nostalgia going go back sure. and watch getting straight that's oh, i love that movie that is a film that would like is that speaks to today and some of the stuff you're talking about immensely it's one of the films we definitely Big want time. to do on the show so well, again one of my favorite filmmakers unheralded richard rush yeah uh stuntman right stuntman yeah. yeah yeah so so here's the thing about james bridges as a director he made eight yeah. films mm-hmm. the films of the 70s all of them are the like the progression of a truly excellent filmmaker. Yep. The Baby Maker to Paper Chase to September 30, 1955 to The China Syndrome, which The China Syndrome is I'm a you know that's my genre. From Parallax View, like anything that has like a dark 
seventies ending, well, and it speaks let's to like talk about how how how, how prescient it was. Yeah, it yeah. came out before Three Mile Island had right. There, so it has so it has this sort of War of the World synchronicity to it. Like they didn't know. What's funny is watching it. It's like this film is mostly like if it if it isn't for Three Mile Island, this film is a feminist workplace drama with yeah. Jane Fonda trying to succeed in a man's world and be a, a legitimate journalist. And it's great on that level. It's It totally works on that level. And then it has this whole other level of, and it goes beyond the assassination, beyond the government conspiracy thing to the, you know, to potential apocalyptic, like real life apocalyptic outcomes. And then you have Jack Lemmon giving probably the last great performance of his middle-aged career. And then he goes on to being old. He sort of, he has the great old Jack Lemmon stuff, but this yeah. is the last where he still feels like that uh, day of the tiger kind of Jack Lemmon. Is it day of the tiger? Save, Save the, the tiger. tiger. Save the Save tiger. The tiger yeah. um, and I, I know I just, I, I going back and watching this movie. I was so blown away by how great it is. But this is my point. At that Oscar party, because they were nominated, someone gave James Bridges cocaine. Because after that, Urban Cowboy, Mike's Murder, Perfect, Bright Lights, Big City, he feels like a 70s songwriter in the 80s. Like, it, he, like there's drum machines and spandex and cocaine and money. <laughs> it's, it, it does, like, they're, they're good. They, you know, Lou Reed's 80s records are good you know but they're not that thing and i i want to i want to hear what you have to say about these films because i like my my co-host brian loves all of the 80s films i watched them and i was sort of like sort of like picking through a meal that i know like let's let's start with urban cowboy because i i i just got the blu-ray uh about six months ago and i hadn't seen it since 1980 um, and I popped it on and I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, which makes it a first cousin to anything in Texas. And yeah. buddy, let me tell you again, he captured that subculture, that world that went from about 1980, I'd say to about 1982 before the eighties really turned into the eighties and became sort of the preppy Reagan era. But I cannot tell you how many guys I went to high school with who had that black Ford F-150 pickup. It was like a 1975 with the KC lights on top, and it was jacked up, and you had the gun racks in the back. And basically all the guys who were seniors and juniors in my high school when I was a freshman, who were football players especially, they were that John Travolta character. Same Stetson, same Justin Boots. Uh, same cut Levi's, that, that Western shirt with the pearl buttons with the pockets. Uh, it captured that sort of, to me, that movie is about how we basically, we fucked our working class in this country. Right. That was right, right around the time Reagan, it was right when Reagan came in mm-hmm. after the gas crisis under Carter. So in Houston, you know, because of the energy crisis, Houston got hit really hard. Then Reagan broke apart all the unions in the 80s. But already, it, that, that, that blue-collar American, that guy that won World War II for us, the, the, the guy who had that union job with a hard hat where you punched a clock, but you know what? He still had a nice house with two cars in the driveway, was able to send his kid to college. Uh, 
all that was vanishing. And you saw that in the John Travolta character. He was trying to emulate his own father. And it's like, guess what, buddy? The world's changed. So the only joy he had was riding that mechanical bull and pretending to be a modern 19th century cowboy. And I just, you know, and, and the real cowboy, the real 19th century guy who also didn't fit was the Scott Glenn character. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. If it had been 1880 instead of 1980, that guy would have been riding with the Dalton gang, robbing banks. Yeah. And he was the real deal. But there was no place for him in that world. And then, you know, you, you got Deborah Winger who's stuck between these two men. So I think it's a great film. I think it's I, I think it, it just it captures this one brief moment uh, in our country's history. Well, uh, you know, our ethos on the world is wrong is that the person who enjoys something is de facto more correct than the person who doesn't enjoy it. So yeah. I so I surrender to you on this one. I, I want this to be good. My I, my take on it is much shorter. It's like this is exactly Saturday Night Fever, but in a I could see but, that. Where where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Olympia, Washington, and I knew those. Like I definitely I definitely knew some of that, but. I don't know. I just, you know, it's just John Travolta. Sometimes John Travolta really works for me. And sometimes John Travolta really doesn't work for me. I hear you. I hear you. That's why this feels like Saturday Night Fever in cowboy boots. And that's what why it worked. That's why it was a hit. I mean, it was, I remember it was a phenomenon. And I wasn't even, I wasn't into country music, but I had like the Charlie Daniels band single. Yeah. But I I, th- I think your take on it is much better. And what's interesting is I'm looking at it. So that m- movie was such a hit that he just decided to break it in two and make a Deborah Winger movie and a John Travolta movie next. Now, Mike's Murder is a, a film that I don't feel like I watched it once. Yeah, I like it. And I also feel like it's a much deeper film than I was able to get on the first level. The one thing I'll say is that watching it, it feels like it is weirdly a film about AIDS, but it never talks about AIDS. But the feeling I get from it is that. Is that... Well, apparently, uh, you know it's a compromised film, first of all. it's It was taken away from him and recut. Uh, that makes sense, because it doesn't make originally, sense. Originally, it was like Memento. It was told in reverse. And I know a couple people who've seen that cut, and they said it's absolutely brilliant, but... Given that that was the time, 1984, when all the MBAs had taken over Hollywood, they said they, they could see why that period of studio executive would have been scratching their heads over it. Because it was too, it was like a 60s new wave picture that, that was set in the cocaine party culture of L.A. at that time. But again, uh, living in Arizona, we were right next door to California. So I would, at that point in my life, I was visiting L.A. at least a couple times a year. We had relatives here. Uh, that, that we would hang out and stay with. And, uh, you know, at that point, I was also looking at colleges, so I came and looked at SC and UCLA. Um, all I can tell you is, is that Mike's murder captured the zeitgeist of what L.A. was like then, because I was, I was going to college here just a couple of years later at, at USC. And, I mean, it was... Yeah. It, it just... There was just something slimy and hazy about LA then that was very specific and that movie captured it. And what's interesting is apparently uh, 
it's based on an actual murder case that was that happened in the gay community in West Hollywood at the time where James Bridges knew the people involved. And uh, Paul Winfield, who you'll remember in the movie, was just heartbreaking as sort of a, an upscale drug dealer, like white collar criminal guy, I guess you'd describe him as, uh, was actually the lover of the guy who was killed in reality. Paul Winfield, the real Paul Winfield? Yes, the actor Paul Winfield, who who was out. I'm not outing him. No, he, no, no. He was very out. I, I, but, so I, uh, there's a there's another odd synchronicity here. I just got to ask you a question because since we've had we've we've shared these weird cultural traumas together, uh, I spoke about it in the very intro episode of the podcast that one of the first and most uh, you know visceral cinematic experiences I ever had was watching Paul Winfield's Martin Luther King miniseries oh that was great without knowing how it ended oh wow so that was the other time and it was right around the same time i had a very similar like that and john john lennon's death are kind of tied together to me and when paul winfield when mlk gets killed at the end of that movie i like my parents were so freaked out i just lost my shit like i was channeling ancient trauma it was so yeah. weird. Um, anyway, yeah. So and seeing Paul Winfield show up and ever and ever since then, seeing him show up in anything is one of the. He was great such a fine actor, cinema. and you know, you look at the way he and Lance Hemrickson played off each other in the first Terminator as the two cops. He, you know, it's it's like you know Lance Hemrickson was so intense, and Winfield was just so chill. Yeah, nothing phased him. You know, he just, you know, he could take a small part like that and so make it his own. Um, Just a great, great actor. Great actor. So I guess I, I, since, again, we we, we share this kinship, I wonder if you have this experience. When I watched Bright Lights, Big City, I couldn't finish it. It was too close. I lived in that time. Actually, it made me think of, uh, I tried to get my mom to watch Mad Men, and she's like, I can't. It's, I lived it. I well, can't. I, I can, I can, I can top that. So I, I read the book before I saw the movie. Uh, obviously I didn't live in New York. I was a college student in, in Los Angeles, but uh, yeah, not only that, but the movie much more so than the book came up when I think it came out when I was a senior in college because I was in love with this girl, my senior year at SC who just toyed with me like a cat with a mouse. I mean, she, she looked like she walked out the cover of Sports Illustrated. She was so beautiful. What, what, what I chose to ignore, though, is how ugly and messed up she was inside. Uh, what, what, you know, we would later come to know as a classic narcissist. And narcissists live to basically destroy other people. So she played me like a grand piano, just like the Phoebe Cates character did to Michael J. Fox in Bright Lights, Big City. and. I remember I went to see it with a bunch of my fraternity brothers right while I was right when I realized this girl had been sleeping with somebody else like for months right under my nose. And I watched this movie and suddenly, you know, I'm sitting there with like 11 of my fraternity brothers watching this and suddenly like tears are just streaming down my face. And I'm like, oh, shit, these guys are going to see me cry. You know? <laughs> I just thought, you know, because guys didn't cry back then in front of other guys. Deep down, you you're more of a Jimmy J. Guy. You're yeah. a well, sensitive yeah. no, it's true. James Dean it's true, but, guy. But here's what's cool. Here's what's cool. They saw me crying. The lights came up and they were like, dude, what's wrong? And I told them. They all like put their arms around me, took me out to a bar, and got me very properly pissed. 
And <laughs> it was kind of a nice lesson for me that, you know, something, this whole thing, boys don't cry. Yeah, that's bullshit. You know, uh, it was a very cathartic experience for me. And wow. revisiting Bright Lights, Big City, the movie years later, uh, it, it again, it captured that 80s zeitgeist where it was all about what was on the surface. Yep. And nothing about what was inside you, the individual, or the other person is the individual. And, you know, I, the 60s kids had a hard time with Vietnam and the sexual revolution and everything else that was going on. I think those of us who were 80s kids are lucky we survived the 80s. The 80s were ruthless. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a ruthless, nasty, shallow time. And uh, if you had any sort of a pulse, you were going to come out of there with some pretty major scar tissue. Yeah. Yeah. That is so And true. that's what that movie showed. I think that's what that movie showed. And then, you know, when, when, when Michael J. Fox meets the Tracy Pollan character, who, of course, he went on to marry in real life, uh, I thought it ended on a very hopeful note uh, to show that, you know, yes, there are actually still some, some people out there with some humanity alive inside of them. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I think that was his last film as a director. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that was his last yeah. film as a director. I, I, I'm glad that he, he had something that ended on a hopeful note as his swan song, because I think, I think essentially he was an optimist. I think if you look at, at all mm-hmm. of his films, I think he had faith in the human spirits. And I got to say, going back to September 30th, that final shot of Richard Thomas riding down Main Street yep. out of town, and you see the movie and the person on the marquee yep. of that amazing old theater. That is one of the best last shots of any movie ever made. It gives me chills just talking about it. Yeah, it's so perfectly done. Um, it there there it, it reminded me of like an Edward Hopper painting. Are you an Edward Hopper fan? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It it had it had the same kind of feeling. Um, and you have the tragedy of, of who is on the marquee mm-hmm. and what's coming for her. But then you have the optimism of Jimmy J riding off into the sunset. And if I, I think I had to choose one, one movie to sum up James Bridges, it would be that final image or one image rather to sum up James Bridges. It would be that final image in that film. Yeah. Yeah. To me, if it weren't for September 30th, 1955 and the China syndrome, I don't think that James Bridges would be interesting to me. But those two films are so great that it's sort of like the lead up to him, to them. I can feel him feeling himself as an artist and getting there and making these two, one incredibly personal statement and one incredibly like global statement. And then let me, say, yeah. let me ask you this about the China syndrome. If you don't mind me interrupting real yeah, quick, yeah, uh, I would also argue, and by the way, great film, like not just a great film, but one of the greatest films made in what is arguably the greatest decade of American film yeah. is the China syndrome. Yeah. But it's also his most conventional film. It's also yeah. something that if it had fallen into the wrong hands, if somebody mm-hmm. like, you know, Jeno Schwark, who did Jaws 2, who's a TV director, had directed it, it would have been like a TV movie. Right. Easily. But but you had someone like James Bridges who had such a, oh. a subtle touch who oh raised my God. it to art. His feeling um, for the Wilford Brimley character in that, yeah. that gives us the ending of that movie in a way that, like, those... That the that ending shouldn't work. That's an ending that people try and do all the time, and it should be fake, and it should be hollow. 
but he sets it up and that is like I mean I, I when when Wilford Brimley shows up in that it's like oh I remember this guy yeah but I yeah, don't yeah. remember this guy this is a very this is you know as if Wilford Brimley was ever young but this is like you know mid 40s Wilford Brimley and what he does with that character the sensitivity that just it's weird the whole movie kind of hinges on him he was in his mid forties and he still looked seventy. Yeah. That, that's the amazing thing about Wilford Brimley. He was he was younger than we are now when he was in the thing, and, yeah. and you're still figuring you're like, yeah, that guy's like 70, 68, 70. <laughs> uh, well, but the no, his his character is absolutely like the Greek chorus. Yeah, um, and it's done in a way that's not expositional. That's no. the other masterful touch. In, in the wrong hands, it would have been like you know and. I'm a huge fan of Oliver Stone's movies for his first 10 years, but there's always that fucking Oliver Stone scene where it's like, for those of you too stupid to understand yeah. what this movie is about, here's what it's about. But no, the way the way that Bridges had, did Bridges write China Syndrome also? Yeah, I think so, yeah. He did, okay. No, so, so Bridges' words, Brimley's delivery. It, and the casting just, of Brimley's, like, for this character, I need a face. I need a yep. face that just the way he looks says, I'm thinking, I'm questioning myself. You know, like he has his arc in that film is crazy. But I'll tell you one difference, another big difference about the China Syndrome and all the rest of, of Bridges films. There are no weirdos in this movie. Everybody. everybody oh, 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 no, no. Michael Douglas is the weirdo in this movie. Oh, see, I disagree. I see him. I see him as as an ex hippie who very much wants to be a successful cameraman and be part of the journalistic establishment, but, but from the Woodward Bernstein mold, right. not from, you know, not from the Huntley Brinkley mold. Right. Uh, so I, I see this as a movie about very ordinary people, all of them really conventional people who just have the rug pulled out from under them. Uh, and it's his only movie like that where, where you really do not have a disenfranchised outsider among any of them. I mean, is there a more ordinary character in movie history than Jack Lennon's character in this? Well, you know what? I think I think that comes from Jane Fonda. I think that was when I watched this movie now, I realized because that that was the point where Jane Fonda was really taking charge of her you know, her movie career. Oh yeah. And be she was at the height of her powers. And I've talked, you know, in the podcast in the past about Warren Beatty. I've actually said that I feel like Warren Beatty his career as a filmmaker is the kind of career that James Dean would have had if he had gotten to make films. I don't know, like, we, we don't need, stylistically, I don't know, but there's some way of managing to independently subvert the system from the role of the movie star. I have been trying to interview Warren Beatty for nearly 30 years, and he's just so inaccessible, but I find him endlessly fascinating both as an artist and as a person. Uh, also, it goes without saying, I love his politics, and he got he got his start volunteering for Bobby Kennedy before yeah. he worked with McGovern. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I, although I think, I think Dean would have been more Cassavetes than Beatty. Definitely. I think that he, I think he would have been much, probably not unlike what Dennis Hopper became. I mean, Dennis Hopper, if you look at you know from Easy Rider onward, all the films he directed were really weird about yeah. weird people. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie he did called Out of the Blue. Oh, yeah. He was still deep into addiction. Yes. That is one of the most powerful kick-in-the-balls movies I've ever seen. Um, and I, I see Dean being somebody who would always have pushed the envelope up to the point where, you know, almost like Pasolini, 
you know, toward the end of Pasolini's life, he made the most shocking movies, mainstream movies ever made. And he did it to make a very specific point. I don't know if you're a fan of his last film that was released posthumously, uh, Solo. Hmm, I don't know. But it's, uh, it, it, I think it was released unrated because it was one of those movies where the ratings board looked at it and said, there aren't enough X's in the alphabet for this movie. And, but it's also the most stunning indictment of fascism as a human condition that I think has ever been filmed. And I think Dean would have made movies like that. I think he would have taken a sledgehammer and hit you over the head if he had to, to make his point. But it would have been done with such artfulness that the, the, the scenes of, you know, horrific violence and perversion. And I'm referring now to, to Salo again, that you see, it, it, they're so difficult to watch, but you can't take your eyes off them. Um, and I, I see Dean as being that kind of an artist because that's what he brought to his his screen acting. I mean, there, if if you look at the stuff he was doing in the mid '50s, it was unprecedented. It, it, it's it's what De Niro, Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, all those guys were doing a generation later when it seemed quote unquote contemporary. Yeah, but that's the difference. That is the yeah. difference. It's like. It's one thing to cry in a time where people are sympathetic to crying. It is another thing to cry, to weep openly among people who just can't, don't know how to deal with that. And I think bringing it back, I feel like that's kind of what's there in this movie, this feeling of this movie. And it is about like when I was a child, I could cry. And now they're telling me I can't express that anymore. And why the fuck not? And James Dean is saying, no, keep fucking crying keep precisely you know and that's it's it still speaks and i think that's why this film still speaks there's, there's one other thing about james bridges we have to address otherwise we would be completely remiss he really cut his teeth on alfred hitchcock presents oh yeah as a writer uh he was discovered by norman lloyd who god bless him just died at what was he 106 or something uh who was hitchcock's producer then who also became an actor later on on saint elsewhere and uh, although he, he had acted for Hitchcock much earlier in Saboteur, but uh, he, he eventually just became a producer. But he, he discovered Bridges and Bridges wrote something like 15 or 16 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and oh, then wow. won an Emmy and an Edgar Award in the same year for what was it called? Let me see here. Uh, an Unlocked Window from 1965. It, it was the most award winning episode of the series. and. Uh, it, it, his his work on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was also loaded with talent, of young talent. William Friedkin yep. got his first directing job, directing the last episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I mean, it was just you know a who's who. Yeah, of it's young like the talent. Twilight Zone and The Outer yeah. Limits. They're just just chock full of everyone. Um, but I tell you, if you ever have a chance to see this episode in particular, called an Unlocked Window, it will still scare the hell out of you. And, and it's over 50 years old and made for TV. Wow. An unlocked window. Yeah. Uh, and I guess to bookend that, we should also mention that he is the writer of White Hunter, Black Heart. Terrific film. The... Well, along with, along with uh, the, uh, the actual person that Jeff Fahey character is based on, um, what's his name? He was married to Deborah Carr, famous writer. Uh, Oh, um, hmm. like legendary. He did the adaptation of The Sun Also Rise. Peter Vertel. Okay. Uh, so it was Peter Vertel and Bridges who wrote yeah, White Hunter, Black Heart, which 
you know, it's such a magnificent movie with, with, with one sort of flaw. I wish somebody had told Clint Eastwood, just talk in your normal voice. Don't try to imitate John Huston, <laughs> but it's still, it's still a movie I love. Um, and it's a very literate, very intelligent screenplay. It's funny when I was describing, I've been talking to some of my film friends about, and, I, and as I describe James Bridges and who he is, and like I'm getting into James Bridges and what I really like about him, and then I drop on them at the end, and he wrote White Hunter, Black Heart. They're sort of like, what? Yeah. Like this <laughs> ultimate macho old guy, like one super macho old guy tributing this other super macho old guy with the, the quintessential a macho old guy being Humphrey Bogart at the center of this whole story. And it's written by, by and created by James Bridges, who is like, there's nothing macho about any of his movies, except I guess weirdly in this one, like macho in the sense of loving the masculine, I guess. And it, this, his, uh, his uh, sort of loyalty to S- Scott Glenn and his abs <laughs> well, of course, to be fair to Mr. Eastwood, what we've learned about Quint later on uh, as he directed more films is that he, in real life, he's not Mr. Macho. He's actually a very sensitive, artistic soul. Uh, and according to, I, I've never interviewed him or spent time with him. I met him briefly once after I spent a day on the set of Million Dollar Baby, but I saw him work. And just the way he interacted with his cast and crew such a gentle soul with a gentle a gentle touch. And apparently who Clint Eastwood really is closest to is his character from Bridges in Madison County. Um, he, he's uh, very quiet inside. He's not macho man at all. Uh, and he couldn't have made films like, you know, Unforgiven, Million Dollar Baby, you know, some really beautiful, tender movies unless he had that inside of him. So I think he probably, I think he was, I think he was drawn to, the gentler aspects of the story rather than the macho posturing, which of course we see at the end of that movie, it, it was all posturing. Yeah. That, that great final shot of him as Houston in the director's chair. I mean, again, what, what a, a great final shot. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and that was the, that was the end for, that was the end of the, of the career of James Bridges, which is yeah. a kind of a fitting, I mean, if you're, he doesn't have a bad like he doesn't have something really embarrassing at the end of his his run. He has no. He collaborated on. I I think White Hunter Black Heart will probably be one of those films that falls right in the middle. Of, like when people go through Eastwood's career, that is a film that's going to rise up because it is kind of so like it's like half Bronco Billy and half, well, Dirty Harry, kind of in the sense of like, it is it is the macho thing, but it's not. It's subver- subverting it. It's this character study, right? I would like to I would like to add, because we keep referring to Bridges dying young, we, we do need to, to emphasize how young a filmmaker and writer he was, because when he died, he was only, what was it, 57? When he died in June 1993, he died of intestinal cancer. Uh, and uh, what a loss. You know, what a loss. I just, uh, and, and I mean, one of the great gifts of having Clint Eastwood releasing his latest movie soon at age 91 is that, you know, what a perfect example of an artist whose longevity allowed him to grow 
and be progressive in his work. Um, someone like James Dean and even to a large extent, James Bridges, they didn't have the opportunity to do that. Is there anything you'd like to plug or, or share? Or uh, I have, I have my podcast called the Hollywood interview. It's on all streaming platforms. My website that has over 600 interviews I did from 1996 onward is the Hollywood interview.com. Uh, that's about it, man. Thank you for this. I had a, I had a great time. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Hey, y'all, it's Amy from the Pink Among Men podcast. I know, you are really, really busy with your sourdough starter and your fourth rewatch of The Office. So it's totally cool if you don't have time for an informative, perspective-bending podcast right now. But if you do have a few minutes to spare in your jam-packed schedule, I want to offer Pink Among Men for your consideration. Pink Among Men is a weekly conversation on different perspectives, gender, and marginalization in the creative community. We chat with actors from shows you watch, directors who make movies that you want to watch, and comedians from stand-up shows that you'll probably never watch, but you should. Every Wednesday, they sit down to talk about the tragedy and the triumph that comes with not being a white dude in arts and entertainment. You probably don't have time for it, but maybe subscribe so you can listen when you're a little less busy. Get Pink Among Men on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're a proud member of the Paper House Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Well, okay, Brian, we're Great. back. Uh, that... that the conversation. It was great talking with Alex. I, I hope we have him back sometime. That was a lot of, uh, not just fun. It was just like kind of crazy connective. Like, oh, wow, we're right on the same generational tip. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. A lot of similarities between you and him. It's sort of like a brother from a different mother sort of thing going on here. Yeah. He actually invited me to meet him in LA and smoke cigars uh with him and and steven peros and i was like well first of all i'm not in la second of all i don't really smoke cigars you're not supposed to breathe it in you're supposed to just let it out i don't know about this, still like going you're doing in, it wrong going inside you're a house with going in a, in a room with and just sharing that much air with people seems but it's dirty air because it's the cigar smoke it k- takes covid out really that's how it works oh okay that's, that's my i'm a doctor listen to me i know but, uh, uh, but, 
Uh, I think we can we can get flagged for medical misinformation. If, if <laughs> yeah, yeah, never mind, never mind, never mind. Anything that, I said. that oh, they're out buying cigars, horse cigars. Um, <laughs> um yeah, so. no, that was good. I, so yeah, I I'm a big fan of the '80s stuff by Bridges. Like I really love love Urban Cowboy, and I think the and we've talked about this recently. Like, I think that the main complaint I hear from people who don't like Urban Cowboy is that John Travolta is totally not believable as an urban cowboy in, in the middle of Texas. But I disagree. I think it works for the themes of the movie because I feel this movie's sort of about fake cowboys. Like, they're not riding a real bull. They're riding a mechanical bell. These aren't real cowboys. They're guys that go to a bar and play it's like these are like larpers basically <laughs> these are like cowboy they're pretending to be cowboys they're not they're not roping cattle like they're just at a bar and i think you have someone like john travolta who like is yeah he's clearly not a cowboy but that's why it works for me like i i and and okay so maybe it's just saturday night fever but with you know like hats i'm fine with that i don't care <laughs> i also like staying alive you know what I'm just in it to win it with John Travolta, I guess. How about Perfect? <laughs> I want to. I've never seen Perfect. I need to see Perfect. That's a movie that I need to see because I like aerobics. I like Jamie Lee Curtis, Travolta again. I feel like, like that's Jamie Lee Curtis, right? Yeah, yeah. I need to see. I mean, I need to see that. Yeah, movie. I was. I was happy there. that Alex gave some love to Lorraine Newman's performance in in Perfect. Because it's one of those performances that's so real that it is a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> and so afterwards, I was sort of thinking that I didn't like her performance. But then when but hearing Alex give it the attention it really deserves, it made me go back and give it another look and be like, oh, no, no, this is such a good performance that it just made me feel things that the rest of the movie uh i don't know i don't what didn't uh, whatever that they ended up being odd notes in the symphony of the film <laughs> and she's not in a lot of movies like that is sort of like all we get you know like lorraine newman didn't really have a big career after saturday night live so i'm excited to watch her in that movie because i've always liked her on saturday night live um yeah so all the more reason for me to see that movie okay okay uh, all the more re reason for you to see this movie, September thirtieth, nineteen fifty-five. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I like I like Dennis Quaid. I'm a huge Susan Terrell fan. I yeah. There's it just it's you know, I just couldn't line it up before this September thirtieth. But you know what? Next year, September thirtieth, I will be able to have seen this movie by then. You know, I'm I'm like watching Christmas movies in March. Like I'm always behind. Like it takes me a while to catch up with the zeitgeist but you at least saw the clips that i cut out for us to post on instagram yeah and isn't it a gorgeous Dennis, looking film yeah it feels like the 50 it's like that kind of movie where it doesn't feel like actors pretending to be in the 50s like it really just feel like it's from like a time capsule from 55 like it's not overdone it doesn't seem like at least from the clips and Man, Dennis Quaid has such a baby face. This has to be one of his first movies. Yeah. He looks really, really young. Like He doesn't have that square American jaw yet. He's got a little bit of baby fat around that square American jaw. Well, uh, 
so let's let's shift a little bit. First of all, uh, you know, we, we always tell you, but please give us nice ratings and reviews, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. You can find us at the World is Wrong Podcast. You can send us emails at contact at the World is Wrong Podcast. You can find our Instagram page at the World is Wrong Podcast. That's uh, that's sort of your bailiwick, Brian. You kind of handled the the Instagrams. You're slamming yes. and you're gramming left and right. You're... <laughs> slamming, slamming and gramming. And you're the king of Twitter. You're the king of the I'm, Twitter. I'm we the twit. I am. I am the twit that. <laughs> that you can count on and so yeah we just we started a twitter and we are now posting stuff there and i sort of han- handle that so if you if you have if you have issues with anything on instagram <laughs> take them out on brian if you have issues with anything we post on twitter take it out on me don't blame him i'm the one i'm the one liking posts from vincent gallo or whatever <laughs> I mean, so am I. So I guess we're both guilty in trouble because we're support. One. We're positive people. We're supportive of. of you know, filmmakers. if you if you send if you send love out, the hope is that the love reaches them, and then they can send love back. That like just in the universe, you know, like you can fight hate with love. That you know, John Lennon, man. Yeah, Peace and him, like, yeah, <laughs> and. <laughs> It's it's not that I'm not worried about that 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 my love is not going to bounce off of uh, like Woody Allen or Vincent Gallo or something and come back. It's more like that my love's going to land over there and then another person is going to say, "Why are you saying nice things?" Wait, uh, I don't make it sound like it's a woman. <laughs> Why are you saying nice things about this horrible person? Because because their movie was good. That's I mean that's pretty much that's that's the reason because the movie was good. That's. We love movies. And, uh, they're in it. They are. They're innocent <laughs> bystanders and, uh, in the lives of the people who make them. And uh, and uh, and I'll try to not to say bad things about people whose movies I don't like. It has. It shouldn't have any. Yeah. To do with that. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's a weird world. Um. <laughs> of course, you can find Brian also at the Director's Wall podcast, where they're currently going through the filmography of Francis Ford Coppola. And if you're interested in my other podcast, it's Radio 8 Ball, all one word, radio with the number 8, Ball, B-A-L-L, where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting them like musical tarot cards. And if you are an app user, you can download the Radio 8 Ball app to your iPhone and ask it questions and listen to podcasts and uh, get randomly chosen songs to the answers to your questions from over th- over 2,000 that have been recorded in the history of Radio 8 Ball. Wow. And coming up next oh, week, we man. S- we're starting it's- the month of Wrongtober. It's- we did this last year. We're doing it again. We talk about movies that aren't considered horror, but we think are horrific, horrifying, and movies that are horror that maybe aren't so horrific. You know, and it's just how we celebrate the spooky month of Wrongtober. Uh, I'm excited. We got quite a lineup. I I'm very very pumped for everyone to listen to these. Like you can just slam some candy corn, listen to all these episodes every week, the whole damn month. It's it's thrilling. It's a thrilling experience. So should we tell them all about? Let's let's tell them all. Let's tell them all the Wrongtober yeah, films. Yeah, let's get people pumped. Um, okay, so. Uh, 
So we're starting off next week with uh, Wolf, directed by Mike Nichols, starring Jack Nicholson from 1994. We both love this film, right? Oh, yeah. I'm very, very into this movie. (laughs) Can't get enough of it. Um, (laughs) We're following that up the the week after with another guest co-host, the return of Jen Brown from Genre Graveyard. You'll remember her from our Jennifer's Body episode and from our last Noscars ceremony. And she suggested the Bong Joon-ho film Okja from 2017, which you haven't seen yet. I saw it's it's so great. It's it's currently one of my favorite movies. I, I, I loved it that much. And the conversation with Jen was really great. And who knows? We may have we may add some surprise guests to that episode by the time it comes out in the second week of October. Then we get into a different kind of scary. Are you ready, Brian? Right, I'm ready. <laughs> I guess I'll keep saying them because I have the list in front of me. Uh, it's we're going to be doing Don's Plum from oh yeah, nineteen ninety-five. Uh, this is the, the scariest movie I think we have for the month of October. It is the somewhat banned film Don's Plum. Star. It was the first film with. Toby Maguire, and it also had Leonardo DiCaprio and Kevin Connolly and Jeremy Sisto and Jenny Lewis and uh, just uh, lots of young talent from the from the mid 90s. And then after it was done being made, Toby Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio decided that no one should see this film. And so it's very hard to see in America. And I happen to know some of the creators. So I got a, an interview with Dale Wheatley, who is the one of the producers and the writer, one of the writers on this improvised film. And yeah, so there's the horror story about sort of these terrible guys who are in this movie and how they are, they particularly the Leonardo DiCaprio treats everyone uh, poorly. And then there's also the uber horror about what happens when you make a movie that ruins your entire life, which is something we get into with Dale. And then we get the, we move on into October with one of your choices, with your choice for the month, Brian. Yes. Ravenous. 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 Yes. Ravenous. A little scene, cannibal, comedy, horror, wonderful film. Uh Yes, I'm really excited for that episode. It's a movie I've been a champion of for years and still haven't been able to convince everyone to watch it. So maybe hopefully this will make it a tradition for people finally. Yeah. Every October to watch Ravenous. Directed by Antonia Bird, starring Guy Pierce and... Yeah. Robert Carlyle. Robert Carlyle. Uh, yeah. David Arquette. It's a great movie. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then Check we're extending Wrongtober into Wrongvember. Uh, <laughs> just because we ended up having too much good stuff. We're going to be uh, putting out an episode about The Believer from 2001, starring Ryan Gosling and directed by Henry Bean. And I will be conducting a conversation with the director himself, Henry Bean, about wow. this film about a Jewish Nazi or a Jewish skinhead in New York based upon a true story. And I think it was the film 
it was really the first uh, film where Ryan Gosling showed what he's capable of as a yeah. movie star. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So very, very, very good. So watch these movies, find these movies, watch these movies before you listen to the episode. These are all very good movies. Wolf, Oakja, Don's Plum, Ravenous, and The Believer. There's your there's your Wrongtober with an extra Homework. little little <laughs> dip into November, into Wrongvember. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so thanks a lot for listening to the to the show. I hope you I hope you were able to track down September thirtieth, nineteen fifty five, and check it out. And I really hope you go and check out all of Alex's work his interviews, his podcast, wherever he's doing something, whether he's writing or just smoking a cigar, you know it's going to be a very classy <laughs> situation. So dig it. And with that said, I guess uh, until next time, it falls to me to give you the existential reality, which is that wherever you are, the world is wrong and it is probably wrong about you. Billie Jean here. Is that you, Jimmy J? Yes, ma'am. Oh, Billie Jean expecting you? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay, come on in. I want you to meet Mr. Brown. Jimmy J and Billie Jean are just exactly alike. All they do is talk about movies and movie stars. Do you think there's nothing else? They go off to the movies to come back and act out the movies. Life imitates art around here, let me tell you. And today, this Jimmy Dean, this sweet little thing you just want to hold and cuddle, dying so tragic like that. I thought Billie Jean was going to follow suit. She sure gave one of her better performances. When her uncle called from Bakersfield, she's standing right here on that phone. She starts gasping for air like she's a fish out of water. I was in the kitchen preparing the hors d'oeuvres for this evening, and I hear this, ay, ay, ay. I said, Billy, gee, what on earth? What on earth? I thought her uncle was dead. So she drops the phone, leaves the receiver dangling, runs up the stairs, gets to the top step, drops, kicks her feet, lays there a minute. I threatened to call a doctor. She gets up, making awful kind of noises, runs into her room, slams the door, won't talk to anybody, lets the phone rings. Where are you going tonight? We're going to Charlotte Smith's house for supper. Charlotte Smith? Yeah. I didn't know she knew Charlotte Smith. Oh, yeah. The girls' football queen last year. Yeah, and, and this year, too. Two years in a row, some kind of record. When's homecoming this year? About three weeks, I think. Isn't that nice? Mm. Smith. Isn't he the state senator? Yeah, that's right. That's the one. Isn't this nice? Wow. All right, well, now this pleases me to death. You go <laughs> right up there. Go get her now. Isn't that nice? He's a real fine boy. I always told Billy Jean to run with the best. So what, they imitate the movies? I did, didn't you? Heck, half the time I thought I was Betty Grable. Remind me more of Jane Russell. Whoa! Mr. Brown. <laughs>